So midnight passes or 11, 12, he doesn't call. And I'm thinking, I left my family for this too. Some silly idea that somebody from Kohler was going to... So one o'clock in the morning goes, I'm really sorry, do you still want to talk? So came down with my little boards and he came up with all the reasons why he thought it might be a little impractical for them. But he said, but we'll buy your company. I said, you don't even... What do you mean you'll buy me? You don't even know me. Hey everyone, you're listening to the PDX Executive Podcast, a show about inspiring Oregon executives, where we talk with them about their career path, what drives them, and their thoughts on the future of business in Oregon. I'm your host, Dan Bruton, and today's show is Ann Sachs, founder of the Tao Company with her namesake, and currently working on her third company, Fetch Eyewear, which is one of the few companies in the country that is a member of Paul Newman Foundation, 100 percenters, where they give all the profits away to causes. So Ann, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. So, you know, you've, you've started so many different businesses. So I want to, I think it's, you know, good to go back to how you first kind of started your first business. And that's, of course, I think being with kind of the tile business. And I was reading that it kind of started when you were a teacher and mm-hmm. kind of from this trip in Mexico, right? Well, I referred back to my experience in Mexico when I happened to walk into La Paloma in Hillsdale which is still there, still a wonderful neighborhood store. And I went in to get a Mexican dress, the embroidered dresses, uh, because, you know, it was the 70s and you want to have an embroidered Mexican dress <laughs> yeah. in your closet. And I saw these little tiles as we checked out, which were just hand-painted Talavera tile, which is a classic building material in Mexico. And I'd been to Mexico and seen the showers made of these floral tiles and loved them. And I was uh, actually had been a teacher, and I was working currently – as a social worker at the Janus program, which is still a fantastic program, helping young people find jobs. I was the job development person there. And I saw these tiles and I said to him, what, do you, what are you doing with these tiles in a basket? And he said, I'm selling them as trivets. And I said, well, why would you sell them as trivets? Because people do whole showers. You could sell a thousand at a time instead of one. And he just said, well, I'm just not into that. And I said, well, I could get into that. And so he's a great guy. So we started doing this together. And ultimately, he just really was not interested. He really loved his business and wanted to run his business. And I uh, had a little house and I bought terracotta pavers. And I paved over all the wood floors in my little English-Spanish house, Mm -hmm. which was considered heretical at the time, you know. (laughs) And then I put one of each little hand-painted tile on our dining room table, and I ran these reverse ads in the Oregonian. They were literally a half-inch by a quarter-inch or half-inch by an inch, black with white writing saying, you know, uh, terracotta and painted tiles. And I started to build up a clientele of home builders, a lot from Central Oregon. You know, I just had this feeling that the this warmth of terracotta and handcraftedness was something that people would embrace. And But I was quite shocked by the reception. So, and were you still teaching at the time? I was still working as a social worker full-time at the time. And, and I want to unpack this a little bit to mm-hmm. go from you know teaching as a social worker to starting your own business. I know you, you kind of went over it. And is it being kind of an entrepreneur, starting your company, is that something you always wanted to do back then or just kind of how did that – I think I just woke up every day and some idea came to me and I thought, well, I guess I could try. Yeah. They're, they're searching for a logical connection to the things I did is really a little bit futile because <laughs> I don't even know what the logic is. 
of any of it, but um, I I love teaching. Mm-hmm. I loved junior high school students. I loved my kids at Janus. It wasn't a question of not wanting to do what I was doing. Right. I think it was um, uh, it, it was an emotional thing. I liked the product, and I felt connected to it, and I... I just decided to try. Yeah. So getting, sorry, I kind of interrupted you. No, getting okay. back to it. You said, so home builders got, started being kind of your main clients, right? And so you started on the commercial side. So how did it kind of transition to more the consumer? Well, they were actually representing in many ways consumers okay. because they were building single family houses. But we were delivering like a thousand square feet of terracotta tiles, which were being picked up in Mexico. And I was arranging the freight and having them dropped off at their site. Uh-huh. And then a couple of bathrooms of painted tiles. So it was logistically very challenging. Yeah. More more than any more than creatively, it was logistically very challenging. But we worked it out and then just up the street here, where the kite store has been for many years, I opened up a little store and I was on the main level and uh, a woman who painted tiles for me, her name is Connie Keener. She lived up above with her daughter, darling girl, and in the basement, she painted tiles. So we had this little wow. house in which tiles were being made and sold. And you just learned the whole logistic piece of that. I mean, you're talking about getting them from Mexico. And I'm like, did you just kind of you learn as you were doing? I, I guess yeah. I must have. Yeah, yeah. I have no memory of uh, uh, of actually learning, but I suppose I came on the street. Uh-huh. And this was not a street of retail at the time. Right. There was the coffee store next door to me and the toy store. We were the only retailers on the street. Mm-hmm. It, there was no Papa Hines. It wasn't a, mm-hmm. um, a consumer-driven right. street at all. Mm-hmm. But I knew instinctively that my customers, which were a lot of people from the West Hills, they would be my likely customers and this would be convenient for them. Mm-hmm. So I kind of took a flyer and decided to open up a store on the street. Wow. So, you know, going from that kind of first opening it, um, how did your brand really take off? Were there any kind of key kind of moments or uh, customers or... I would really like to feel that I have a great answer for this question. Okay. I opened up my store. I, I sat there and, uh, I think there was a lot of word of mouth. Yeah. I think that it was convenient for people in the West Hills and they heard about me. Mm-hmm. I don't remember doing any of the things that I would know to do now, which is have a party for designers, you know, or yeah. do any of the things that you would do. But we, I developed the concept of custom color tile. And I took that to a designer because before I decided to do it, I said to this designer, if I could do for tile what Formica has done for laminate, in other words, give you all the choices in the world for color that you want, Mm -hmm. would you be interested? At that time, a tile contractor came to your house with a little board and you could pick white or almond for your house. That was how it was done for the most part. There were exceptions, but... And so that was relevant to her. But what was really relevant is that she had just received a phone call that eight custom lavatories that she had had made in France to match a French tile sold through country floors, all different shades of gray and taupe, all custom fixtures to match those tiles. She had heard literally a half an hour before that the tile had been discontinued Mm. so she had on a boat all of these custom lavatories because the owners wanted everything in the room to be the same Mm. and i had just walked in there and said what if i can do x and at that moment an idea was born it was also the concept 
um, that was very popular at the time, which was ironically a Kohler concept. Later, we'll get to right. that concept, um, where people were doing fixtures in their kitchens that were colors like blueberry and in their bathrooms, things like shell or rose. Yeah. And was this the early 80s? It was the early 80s, 81 to be exact. It was in the throes of uh, the desert sand lavatory (laughs) craze. And we decided to match them all and to show in our store that if you had this kind of fixture, your tile could match. And that apparently was pretty robust in people's thinking, and it helped a lot. Wow. Okay. So you mentioned Kohler, and you know, as a lot of folks mm-hmm. know, your company was eventually acquired by Kohler. Mm-hmm. So, kind of, how did that happen? How did what? I mean, I was, what year that was in the late eighties? Mm-hmm. The okay. actual transaction was in eighty nine. Uh, so about eight, almost eight years after I had mm-hmm. actually opened that little store. I was in my Seattle store, and I had spent over that seven years of being in business, even though I was a little residential store, I had gotten into doing, and please don't ask me how or why, because I I have no explanation for this one at all. I became fascinated with doing exterior cladding of stone, because also in the early 80s, all these buildings were being built in California, high-rise buildings, and they were all being clad in stone. And I really love stone. So I somehow inserted myself into that business, which was a I only learned later it was kind of a rigged game and hmm. it was a pretty, not, not the most honorable game all the time okay. in the world in terms of who got those contracts and who was paying whom to get those contracts. Hmm. But somehow I managed to get one of those contracts and I did a high rise building. Um, and I learned a lot about stone. So I was in my store and I thought, you know, I just did this high rise building and It was about pennies, even though it was a million dollars in stone. At the end of the day, the quotes were all dollars apart. So if you were always relying on changes to make some money because the competitive nature of selling stone was so intense. Mm. So I thought, how can I differentiate stone? So I came up with the idea of, again, going back to the Kohler fixture environment, saying to myself, these are the popular bathroom sinks, lavatories that they sell from Kohler and they're desert sand and this and that. And right. they use marble tops in a high-end environment. So I'm going to find marbles that coordinate beautifully with these. And I'm going to make a little board that shows the color chip from Kohler and my recommended stone. And prefa- try to convey to them that they should buy them prefabricated in Italy. I would arrange it hmm. with the holes cut out and everything so that when they were competing with other companies like American Standard, a consumer could walk out of there with the entire built bathroom. And I did the same for kitchens, only I used granites to coordinate with the sinks that they were using for kitchens. That's amazing. I mean, because now that's standard, right? So you really... But it wasn't... Yeah. It had never happened. Yeah. Um, And by the way, he didn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So I reached out to the marketing person there. I don't know. He picked up the phone at like 11 o'clock at night. I was planning to leave a message. It's 8 o'clock in Seattle, I remember. And she I just cold-called. Cold I just cold-called him. And he said, well, what do you... I said, well, I think this idea could really work. I think it could give you a leg up in the sort of distribution network because it's a hassle for a consumer to go and find a slab and have a local person make it. And you could just say, here's your lavatory, here's your faucets, here's your counter, here's your cabinet, boom, you're, you're, you're finished. 
And um, he goes, well, there are problems. People want to customize this and customize. And he said, who are you? <laughs> what are you? It's 11 o'clock at night. Who are like, you? Are you? <laughs> yeah. I said, well, I just have this little tile company. He goes, oh, tile company. I said, yeah. He goes, well, the first time I could talk to you was at the Home Builder Show in Dallas at midnight. So I had two little kids. I stayed, I remember it was a really horrifying room. There were no rooms and it was really expensive for me to get there and be there. But so midnight passes or 11, 12, he doesn't call. And I'm thinking, I left my family for this to some silly idea that somebody from Kohler was going to, so one o'clock in the morning goes, I'm really sorry. Do you still want to talk? So came down with my little boards and he came up with all the reasons why he thought it might be a little impractical for them. But he said, but we'll buy your company. I said, you don't even, what do you mean you'll buy me? You don't even know me. Or he said, I can tell you have good ideas. And Mr. Kohler has been wanting to buy a tile company for quite some time. And he's never found the right match. And I think this may be the right match. That is amazing. That is an amazing story. So after the acquisition, you became kind of president of the division of Kohler that, right? And so, you know, how was that? How was that kind of starting your own company, it being acquired, still working mm-hmm. for it? I mean, how, how, how was that transition? It was f- fantastic. It was frightening a little at first. I certainly was, I didn't have any background. I didn't really know how to produce or read the proper financial mm-hmm. documents. And I think some of the people around Mr. Kohler felt that it was uh, a, a very small acquisition, not worthy of the time and effort it would take for them to try to integrate them into their company. But he didn't feel that way for whatever reason. I'm very appreciative, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I learned. I learned to understand the documents, and I also learned to understand how to manage growth. Mm-hmm. We opened 15 showrooms. We were very profitable. And I can only say that it was actually a fantastic experience. It was challenging. Mm-hmm. My vendors were all over the world. I had right. two small kids. I was responsible for locating the real estate, negotiating the leases, designing the showrooms, obviously developing all the products that went into the showrooms, mm-hmm. hiring the employees. And it was a lot, but it was yeah. good. So, I mean, this point, this is kind of... You know, that's a huge accomplishment, but it really is your story is kind of just beginning because you went to open several other companies, what I wanted to talk about. But so you left Kohler and uh, you started another, what was the next company? So obviously I did not allow my better instincts to manage my behaviors because (laughs) I would have probably stayed put at that point. So I had never been the person to whom I was selling. I never just decided to fall in love with something without regard for how expensive it was or whether it was uh, uh, a reach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I apparently I knew how to f- create those products, right. but it wasn't that challenging for me. What I really found challenging was how do we keep that level of sophistication and curating and make find things that are affordable for developers who have to have a return on their investment. So they want a, a person buying a condominium mm-hmm. or someone walking into a hotel to say, oh my, if they have this tile, everything must be superb. I wanted to right. be able to lead that feeling mm-hmm. 
to a customer of a developer, but be able to sell things at a sweet spot of three to five dollars, which was a substantial discount from what we were selling things at our showrooms. Right. And that was how DDS began. And Mm -hmm. the first commercial building I did was the Westerly right up the street with a just fantastic developer. And um, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed editing down things so that it was very easy for the tile contractors to manage the SKUs Mm -hmm. and still make it kind of fresh and exciting. And uh, then I started doing projects all around the world. And so this would have been kind of timeline-wise year? Probably around 2007 or eight. Okay. And now you sold that company too, is that right? Yes, about 18 months ago. Okay, Mm -hmm. so pretty recent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of fast forward a little bit. We're sitting here in North of 23rd in uh, Fetch Eyewear, your, your kind of showroom and studio here. So let's talk about that. When did you start this company it's kind of inspiration behind that too well the idea of doing a a program of reading glasses high quality reading glasses that were optical quality frames Mm -hmm. and good good quality lenses at less than the price of getting them at an optician and a little bit more than the drugstore but a substantially better product Mm -hmm. uh came to me when i was vacuuming it all happened in this neighborhood my car up the street on burnside (laughs) and i left an expensive pair of reading glasses on top of the vacuum okay machine uh, and I was not able to recover them. And I thought, this just got to be a better way. So I started doing some research about how to buy f- frames and how to buy lenses. And um, at that point, my daughter had um, was imminent, coming back to school at Pixie, the Pixie Project, which is our family shelter and low-income right. veterinary clinic, turns 10 years old this month. Okay. So at about the same time Amy was coming back and about the same time we were thinking about creating a, a an animal sh- shelter mm-hmm. and I decided that it would be a great thing to, at the same time to develop a business that dedicated 100% of profit so that after my husband and I are gone there would be not just a foundation to distribute funds mm-hmm. to help this cause that we're so interested in. Yeah helping, but also there would be actually a business that could be run that would be able to grow at a much higher pace than just uh, foundation funds. Okay. You know, Anne, you're talking about these businesses you started and, you, and it's so effortlessly for you, but I mean, these are things that are amazing that, like I said, you really didn't have background. You just did it. And you know, zero going, background. <laughs> and so going from tile to eyewear. And so do you just, again, I want to get back to this. You, have you just always had this drive of kind of this is what I want. I, I see this thing. There's a need for it, and I want to do it. And does it come from you know your parents, or you know I'm always interested in these entrepreneurs we interview is you know that kind of because it sets you apart and is is different. So I I I was very focused on earning a living. I mm-hmm. thought it was important. Mm-hmm. I think I if anything came from my parents, it was that I didn't want to feel insecure about that, mm-hmm. and I felt it was my responsibility. I, I mean, my husband was a lawyer, and we were not. Uh, without resources, but I still felt, I first of all felt it shouldn't be entirely his responsibility because that's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be helpful. So that was part of it. And I was very inspired. I listened to the podcast that you had uh, with the founder of Living Room Realty. And she talked about the 
the mistakes we make as managers Mm -hmm. and as people in a sense, which is she felt like she was always thinking a lot about the future, as have I. Right. It's uh, when you think about the future, you, you, by necessity, you see a problem and you try to come up with a solution and you say, this is my personal tolerance for risk and insecurity, but I've managed to that comfortably for myself. There is an idea I want to chase. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to expose myself X amount. Yeah. And if I can chase it at that level of exposure or risk, I'm going to do it. And I think that's kind of it in a nutshell. You have an idea, but you have a personal value system about how much you want to expose your family. Right. Or yourself to the insecurity of taking an idea further than you're capable of managing it. Mm-hmm. And when she talked about that, it really resonated with me because also the bad thing about being like that is that it's very hard for employees who come in each day and they think this is where you are. You're here, but actually you've gone someplace else and it's takes a lot. You, you should be very patient and appreciative and explain that properly mm-hmm. um i don't think i did a very good job at that mm-hmm. but i actually I, after i heard her podcast i decided i'm going to try harder <laughs> <laughs> well you know one of the things i always like to ask ask janelle this too is you, know, you started your business here in portland you've seen it change you're talking about mm-hmm. here we're on northwest 23rd and so vibrant now and it wasn't back mm-hmm. maybe when you first started you know what are your thoughts on that change in portland and as you, you know, look at it from a business standpoint and continuing to change mm-hmm. the positives and potentially any cons you see? I look at it more uh, from the standpoint of loving to see young people come here. Mm-hmm. I don't really think of it so much from a business perspective, but I, I understand there's more traffic and I understand that the housing situation is very challenging. It does require some significant work. Mm-hmm to be fair to people. Right. It's a fairness issue to me, and I think great minds should be able to help in some way. But the vibrance of the city, because of all the young people coming in, to me is a, just 110 out of 100 plus. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great place to be. We'll kind of see where it goes. But mm-hmm. uh, Well, Anne, really appreciate you being on the podcast. I just think your story is amazing, so thanks for sharing. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. Thank you.